Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I am your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, we have a sports nutritionist that I have come to appreciate more and more over the years and one of the most respected people in her field in ultra running today, and that is Meredith Terranova. And I realize that her name is not going to jump off the page or jump into your earbuds as somebody that you immediately recognize. And that is for a very good reason. It's one of the reasons I appreciate her practice the most. Meredith is very humble. She's very humble about who she works with. She's very humble about the results that those athletes have achieved. And she will be one of the very last people to take credit for those athlete success. And that is a philosophy that I agree with wholeheartedly with people who work with athletes, whether they're in a nutrition capacity or in a coaching capacity, we should always be in the background and the athletes should always be in the foreground. But make no mistake, Meredith is a killer. She is great at what she does. She's very practical. And one of the aspects of this very practical uh, approach that she takes to nutrition and giving advice comes out throughout the course of this podcast. And I hope it starts to become famous and takes the world by storm. And that is her gas station nutrition protocol where she has athletes go out on a run, go out on a ride and go to a gas station and really see what comes to mind, what jumps out at them from the shelves in order to get a fix on what their nutrition requirements and what their race day nutrition plan should actually be. I'm, I was really delighted that Meredith took the opportunity to come on this podcast. Like I said, she's not very big in self-promotion, but I have always appreciated her counsel over the course of years. And with that, as a little bit of a backdrop, I'm gonna get right out of the way. Here is my conversation with Meredith Terranova. I didn't put two and two together. So you and I, you and I have known each other for a really long time, but I never put two and two together why your most recent round of schooling was such a cram job until I was getting ready for this podcast. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's why she crammed like a four year advanced degree into two years. It's because COVID came down and it's just like, well, whatever. Like, this is kind of what I'll do anyway. <laughs> it was amazing. It's like... What timing, right? Because I was going to spread it out forever because you have races, you have training. And then it was amazing. It's like COVID, <laughs> everything's canceled. Let's get this shit done. I think that that is a brilliant use of your time. And I'm once again, I'm kind of embarrassed that I never put two and two together. But I remember like having interactions with you or interactions with Paul and just thinking, man, Meredith has really got her head down and in the books. Like what in the world is like going on with this? It's like, she's doing a four year program in 18 months. It turns out that exactly what's going on. Right. I think it's, yeah, I think in essence, it's like a two and a half, three year program, you know, because by the time you do your thesis and you do everything, it's long. Right. But it was like, I felt like the world was going to, ha ha. The world was going to open up 
after December of 2020. Yeah. So I was like, this is my window and then I can get back to racing. Like this was great. Well, good for you for using that time. I think there are a lot of people that were like sitting on the couch watching Netflix and now they're like looking back at this going, man, I really should have done something with that in those last 18 months. So you're one of the few that did something positive with it. So good job. Yeah. Well, it, I got, I got very lucky cause I had started, but again, it was going to be a long life program. You know, it was just going to yeah. be like, Oh, my second iteration program kind of thing. Let's back Turns up. Out. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit for the listeners, because uh, that's a little bit inside baseball since we've known each other for a while. Take take the listeners through just to set up like who you are and kind of what you do. What you do is a practice from a nutrition perspective, and then where this like most recent cram advanced degree kind of folds into the whole equation. Yeah. So um, I got my degree is actually I was a double major nutrition and chemistry, which they go hand in hand. Um, I actually had in college very little interest in nutrition. It just was like such a big overlap that it made so much sense from an elective perspective and everything. My interest was actually in chemistry. And um, that's actually what I did out of college because at the time it was really, you're a hospital, you know, you work in hospitals as a nutritionist or you don't, there was no talk of private practice. This was in 1998. And so there wasn't this push for a private practice. And then when we moved to Austin, all of a sudden I noticed this need in the athletic realm. And I saw that the, just like athletes weren't being met, you know, so my degree. So I was like, all of a sudden I was already, we were already runners. I was already getting into the ultra running scope. And I just saw that no athletes had an opportunity to really focus on their nutrition. You know, we had Nancy Clark at the time who yeah. was writing books, but really aside from that, there wasn't an opportunity for people to get meal plans and to get um, really performance plans. There was no opportunity to get a performance plan to really help people be successful. So it's like you heard the Western States nausea. And those were the years I was trying to get into Western States in the 2004, <laughs> 2005 world. And so you just heard of people having disasters there from a nutrition perspective. I was like, this could be where I'm going. And this is where my passion is anyway. My, um, my graduate degree was going to be in sports psychology, actually. And my kind of, I did chemistry and then I was like, oh, I'll go back to school and do sports psychology with the eating disorders in mind. And then I kind of was like, oh, wait a minute, there's this hole in the world let me go here. Um, and so I fit myself in and I got very lucky cause it was early right now. That's the degree to have, <laughs> um, you know, go back and have a nutrition degree. There are people who even go back for a nutrition yeah. degree who have had whole careers now. So I got very lucky and this was my degree. This is the, and then I got to take it where it is now. Well, and now we've seen the pendulum swing to the whole opposite side where people with no background and no degree are now opining and giving advice and having nutrition consultations and things like that with athletes. So that's a whole nother kettle of fish that maybe if we go down a rabbit hole deep enough, <laughs> we will tackle that. But here's here's what's always fascinated 
uh, me about what you and people like you do is you are all you are typically coming to the service of an athlete when they are in need, when they are in dire straits. They have had some sort of epic failure at the Western States 100, like you just mentioned, and they're puking all over themselves at mile 60 and they can't fix their nutrition problem. You are very much a fix it type of profession. Very rarely do you see people who are like, yeah, my nutrition's all good. Like what can, what else can you help me out with? That's probably a small sliver if, if a sliver of your entire athlete portfolio. Well, and like I said, I mentioned to you, there's very few people who are like, oh, I'm doing my first race. I'm interested in nutrition. Normally people have kind of experimented a little on their own or read, you know, forums or books of what other people's trial of one have done and like, well, this doesn't work. And so then, (laughs) and quite frankly, now I'm seeing a number of clients who get that golden opportunity of Western states. And they're like, okay, my nutrition has been pretty good, but I'm only going to get one shot at Western states. It's got to be really good for Western states. Yeah. That pressure of being, and you just made me think about this now, um, that pressure of being part of an athlete's team in that type of situation, you know, not to like over make a, make a, uh, too, uh, too generous of analogy towards the Olympics, but it really is something where you get one shot at it. Maybe you get two shots at it and you got to make, you kind of make them count. So with that as a little bit of a backdrop, right. With your nutrition is your nutrition practice is a little bit of a backdrop. I think that that provides a framework for what we're going to talk about. And, and what I want to do is put ourselves in the seats of the listeners right now that are out there sitting around and they they just got into western states or they have had that epic nutrition failure and they're trying to and they're trying to kind of course correct things because I know that's what you deal with a lot. I know that's that's how you help consult people a lot. And what I want to do is is take the listeners through what you would do when you're faced with that because you are faced with it so often and I think that we'll be continue to continue to have to face these things for you know, for forever and ever and ever, maybe we're going to get better at them, but it's, it certainly is one of the longstanding issues, uh, with, within ultra running specifically. So where does it all start, right? You get, you have an athlete, they've had these issues, they, you know, they want to do something really big. How do you start to pinpoint what direction you're going to take them down to improve their, their overall nutrition program? So I like to start with what works and what doesn't. That's always pretty black and white there. And that could be a time frame. That could be a product. Whatever that moment is, there is a moment where some, some things have worked and some things have really not worked. Mm. And so we kind of start with like, let's paint that picture. And any person can do that. They've gone and trained and they've taken a gel and it tastes terrible well, then don't plan to take that gel for a hundred miles, right? Just because it's some magic bullet gel doesn't mean you should take it. It's not right for you. There's not a magic bullet gel. I hate to burst any bubbles there. (laughs) Right. But people read, you know, ads and see things and they're like, oh, I'm supposed to be taking this. And I'm like, but do you like the taste of it? Yeah. And typically the answer is no. Yeah, right. So I always start with what's worked, what hasn't worked. And then I send people off to go play a little bit. We talk about the numbers. We talk about kind of less is more is where I start from. You know, Mm. you can always add more. 
But once you've done too much, the unwinding of that gets tricky. You have to know how much of what you've overtaken, how your body's going to process it and then unwind that. And so I always start with less is more and you can always add. So even to the point for some people who've had like huge stomach problems, I'm like, take half a gel at a time. Yeah. If you're using chews, chew one at a time, you know, and every 20 minutes, take another one. Like, so play that game. And then I send them off to go buy product, you know, um, not to, again, no affiliation with anything, but I really like the feeds kind of situation because you can buy every single flavor and one of them, and you don't have to have a whole tub of something that you're stuck with if you didn't like it. So I love the fact that you can basically go one-off shopping there and you can pick out flavors that are interesting to you. You can pick out whatever, because sky is the limit. The other thing that I always find fun is if you have a long run and you're running it in an urban setting, go to the gas station, you know, <laughs> mid run, go to the gas station, see what looks good. What's craving. Like if a soda is amazing to you, then that can be part of your plan. If every time you go, you go and pick up combos or you get Doritos, like then make that part of your plan, you know, so you can kind of let that shopping experience and your stomach and your brain connect in what do I want? And then, cause you can make numbers work with anything. You know, if a pop tart sounds amazing to you, we can make it work. Um, but you have to start with what do I want first? Because late in a race, when you don't want anything, maybe that's a nuggets that's delicious or Maybe that just changes the scope. Maybe you are such a salty person that all your stuff should be saltier and less gels, less sweet things, you know? So you have to, you can, you're the only, each individual is the only one that can say that, you know, there's no, I can, I can write a plan, but I will say that almost a hundred percent of the time, my super sweet desire is totally different than everybody else's. Yeah. I can do sugar everything and the sweetest sugar, everything that makes most clients, you know, lips pucker at the thought of what I personally can consume. So my personal consumption does not match anybody's. Here's what I really appreciate about that framework, Meredith, is that you're taking this old anecdote, this old adage that we, that everybody has heard in the ultra marathon game for a long time is that that is you are your own N of one. And Whenever I hear people say that, I want to bang my head against the table because while that is true, we are all still humans. And that does not mean that we can bring an organized framework to whatever problem we're trying to solve. And that's what you're doing is you're bringing an organized framework of let's go and let's titrate up the amount of calories that you're taking in at any one point in time, titrate it up or titrate it down, take in half a gel, take in one block. Let's go to the gas station. Are you feeling salty? Are you feeling sweet? Are you feeling savory? Are you feeling, you know, luxurious uh, type of texture or whatever it is? You're taking that, that N of one, whether it's a lot of calories, a little calorie, sweet, savory, or whatever. And you're, br and you're making it into, and you're, and you're bringing like almost like a scientific method to it which is a far better way than just guessing and using this we're all an end of one excuse is to go about like thing, things ha things very haphazardly. So what what I'm hearing from you is is like lean into some of your own intuitions, what has worked, what has not, 
and then and then use that as the experimentation framework for later. One of one of the things that is inevitably going to come about because of that is the time frame that is necessary to do so. And you're laughing your ass off because you're probably thinking of some some athlete that has approached you four weeks or maybe even one week before a race and asked you what sh- like what should I do. One of the things that I know that you uh, have have done a really good job with the athletes that I know that you've worked with is, is you have used as much runway as possible to dial in these nutrition habits. Why is that particular aspect so important? Um, I actually won't work with somebody. We, we might have a dog presence. Um, I won't. Oh, there he is. Oh, <laughs> that's all right. People uh, are used to it. These are COVID Zoom days still. <laughs> um, I won't work with somebody right before their race. So you're just like non-starter. Like, I just can't, I ain't got nothing for you. I can like offer some last minute advice, but I know I can't be successful in helping them if I haven't given them an opportunity to test and try, because I can give somebody numbers, but what if those numbers, you know, we have textbooks, we know what the numbers are. We know what our body can utilize. Great. That may not work with that in of one person. And so if I'm two weeks out, basically they're tapering. They can't even go test stuff. How can I, how can I help you? You know, again, I can look at the weather. I can say, okay, the weather's going to be this. Here's some general advice, but I actually will only offer general advice. It will not take a client on for a race, for a race specific plan um, because I can't be successful for them. And for me, that's everything. Like, I don't want it. I know how important races are. And so I would never want somebody to say your plan was the reason for my failure, yeah. because when people are looking for the reason for their failure, it would be my plan. Yeah. Um, and so, no. So the further out, always the better, because it's like, then when you go out for long runs, you can go play. We can. And so my goal is typically by your last long run, it is really a dress rehearsal to say, wow, we've got it. Because when you feel confident about your nutrition plan, even if you have a plan B and plan C, part of that going in and feeling confident, then you'll never say, I'm sick of this. I don't want this because you'll be like, your, your brain is already tuned into saying, actually, this works. And so if your brain says this works, then we've already started with success. I've got, I got this uh, question on Instagram the other day that I'm just going to spring on you that, uh, that, that, that I'm sure you have answered a lot of times, but if an athlete is going through this race day, nutrition trial and error process, and let's just say they have a long, you know, runway to work with, they're doing all the things that you're asking them to do. They're trying this, they're trying that they're going to the gas station. How do they, or, and how do you go about trying to mimic the things that might, that are an extension of the training process that are longer and harder than the actual training process. So their longest training run might be 40 miles or something like that for a hundred mile race, but you know that they're going to experience some sort of GI symptoms, (laughs) 70 miles into the race. How do you go about the trial and error process planning for that unknown piece? So I have two approaches. One I like to call the Peter Reed, which was the Peter oh my Reed gosh. process. Whoa. I'm pulling out the old school Whoa. Peter Reed. Whoa. Peter Reed, who is a multi-time Ironman winner. 
Um, I don't know if you ever read, it's actually one of my very favorite articles. He used to eat big, huge plates of nachos <laughs> and yeah. basically and truly like yeah. gut bombs. Yeah. And he would go do hard workouts yeah. in the afternoon in the heat. And he said that that best mimicked how bad his stomach would feel or worse than his stomach could possibly feel at the end of the Ironman. And so when he was almost intolerant to wanting food, he would be running hard. And so some of that is if you run in the afternoon or you have a hard workout, that's actually some of the best times if you're kind of crunched to plan is take a fuel, go run a hard workout. And if you feel like you're going to puke, that might not be the food for you. Mm. Um, if you have a belly full of food and then you feel terrible on a run, that tells you that having too many calories in your stomach is not going to feel very good. You might have to slow down, digest the food for a while, especially in this game of all the 200s. If you're eating a proper meal and then you go out and you, you know, get your heart rate up, maybe you're climbing harder than you should, or you're bombing down a downhill when your gut's shutting down and you have all that food trying to digest, that's never going to go well. So there's like little lessons, this over full stomach, this gut bomb that Peter Reed created um, really rings true to the ultra running, even though he was not ultra running and he was doing shorter, you know, in the grand scheme of ultra running, he was doing shorter races, but the intensity that he was going yeah. matches late in a race of ultra running. And I know that that was similar to your response. I did see your, your response on that. And so all my brain said was, Oh, the Peter Reed. <laughs> That's so funny that you mentioned that, but that brings up like a little bit of an extension because this is big, this has come up more, I would say more recently in not a controversial way, but the way that I don't think we were really kind of like flushed out. Is there an adaptation that occurs by doing an overfull run or doing a run that you're intentionally taking in more fueling than you anticipate during race day, because there is a school of thought that there, that that is trainable. That's a lot of costas. In, in fact, like when I'm, when we get off the phone, I'm going to get on, I'm going to get on the phone with a guy from Costas group who just came up with this paper that kind of indicates this, but there's a school of thought that that is trainable. But then there's another school of thought that, well, we really kind of don't know what the adaptability is uh, on these things over the long haul because we haven't really studied. What, what, is your, what is your take on that? I mean, I realize there's a sensation, right, a perceptive aspect of this that you could adapt to running on an overfull stomach. But in your estimation, is there any sort of adaptive process that's going uh, along in conjunction with that? Um. I don't know is the easiest. Yeah. I would say if anything, it's a psychological adaptation of I can run through, like if you can finish the workout, right? It's psychologically like if my stomach doesn't feel good and I can still get my 10 miler a tempo in or a track workout in, I know that there's another side to this. Or if your stomach is so fuel full and let's say you run to puke, but yet you puke and you feel okay. There's a, a psychological right. adaptation to say, I can puke and I can keep running. Um, so I think if anything, it just psychologically prepares you for those moments. Because what happens when people get sick? They panic. Yep. 
right? They, they panic. They either feel like I need to replenish immediately and then they go about over replenishing and then they continue the cycle of being sick or they go into, I'm just not going to eat or drink. And then that's its own, you know, kind of dumpster fire of, you know, failure because you can't keep moving if you're not drinking or eating. So it's like you create this scenario, but if there's a confidence of, I can move through this. How do I work through this? And if I just slowly put things back in or I just let things settle, it's amazing. That psychological aspect is so interesting because I remember having this conversation with uh, Patrick Wilson, who wrote The Athlete's Gut, who I'm sure you're you're familiar Mm -hmm. with as well. And he's been kind of leaning towards the same opinion as well, that a lot of the GI distress that we see is... is mediated by psychological factors, not exclusively mediated by psychological factors, because certainly there's a, yeah, we know we can overload with what nachos or whatever you want to overload with, but, but we can absolutely impact things by being able to kind of psychologically tolerate them better and going through the experience of having the gut bomb and working through it or going through and puking. We all know puker, like people who puke a lot in races, it's like no big deal to them. They're just like literally puke and rally because they've been through it again. They've been through it time and time again and they don't panic. And it's just a part of their whole, their whole race philosophy. So I think you're onto something there where the psychological uh, aspect of this and getting through it is a bit, is a, is a big, big part of that. Did you ever take that? Do you ever take that like full circle with your clients as well that have like really consistent GI issues? One of the things that we kind of talk about is the fact that, you know, if somebody has an extenuating circumstance like ulcerative colitis or IBS or any of those things, most of those things are triggered, you know, acutely with stress. Right. So if you just kind of peel that onion back, so if we don't even think about a disease state, if we just think about a stomach issue state during a race, if you're thinking about that, then you say, okay, what do we do? We'll remove the stress. When you get very stressed out about your stomach angst during Mm -hmm. a race, you are amping up your situation. Your heart rate's increasing. You know, if you think about, so then when you are running, you're slightly closer to anaerobic, which shuts blood's moving away from your stomach. Like if we think about all those things that happen, you know, physiologically happen, if you think about those things that are happening, well, the stress is actually making that worse. And so if we think about just kind of how do we find peace in that or how do we trust our plan B or plan C very calmly when we think about those things like, oh, I'll just move into plan B. I'll just move into plan C like really calmly. You can find resolution. It might not have been the food that we're finding resolution in. It might just be in the calm approach to finding yeah. resolution. You know, I, there's no scientific behind that, but it's like if we really think deeply into that, maybe there's something more to that as we kind of think of our problem solving techniques in races. Well, the more I think about this though, and the more I actually like see it flush out in practice, it just comes down to repetition and working on it during training. I mean, it's almost like anything else the, the the wrinkle to it is, is the sessions have to be long enough to be conducive to the, to the trial. Right. And, 
you know, a lot of the sessions that are 90 minutes or even kind of like two hours in length just don't offer the best proof point, but still going through the motions of going through your quote unquote race day routine, which I hate that because it just should be an extension of what you're doing in training, right? Right. I mean, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't change a whole heck of a lot. Maybe you're doing things in a different order or with a different rotation, but it's just a different combination of your, of your training routine really is what is, is what it ends up being. But I've always found that the athletes who are the most successful on race day with their nutrition plan are the ones that just as simply practiced it more. Very, very, very simple. Right. But, and that also comes down to trusting and feeling confident with it. Right. And say, I also side note to that though, because people do get taste and flavor fatigue. I'm like, if you know, your plan's working really well, when you go out and train, like you can, you know, eat other things. And that way, like for me, for instance, I know my race day nutrition. And so most of the time when I go training, I actually am either trying other stuff or I'm utilizing other things just because when it comes to race day, I actually want to look forward to this really good stuff that I have on race day. (laughs) But I've also been using the same or very similar race day nutrition since like 2010. And so, you know, does it get old? It might if I'm using it all the time. But it hasn't changed all that much. That's the point of that is I found my successful fueling plan when I did Western States in 2010 and you name the race or event that I've done since. And it has been part of my plan since then. Yeah. But really, even if you think about it from a food technology standpoint, it hasn't really even changed that much. No. And that's why you can interchange, right? Like that's why I know what works. And so instead of using the same flavor, the same product, I can use really similar stuff get the same result in training and not be sick of my favorite race flavors. Yeah. So if we, if we kind of like, we could probably end the podcast now, but we're not going to, I'm not letting you get the hook that quickly with do the things that you anticipate during the race and training, try a variety of things, figure out what works for you and systematically figure out what doesn't work for you over long periods of time. That's a pretty darn good framework to go from. We didn't even touch amount of calories or amount of fluid or anything like that. Let's just get the framework right first. And that's, I, I, that's what I say every time is the numbers are the numbers, right? We know the science, we know what our body can utilize, like period. We, we can't, we can't stretch. Like you, you can't take somebody who, you know, takes in X number of calories, we'll call it 200 calories an hour should be at least if they take in a hundred calories, like they're going to feel bad. They don't have enough. If they take in 800 calories an hour, which your body cannot do anything with 800 calories an hour. Um, you know, so it's like the science is there. So you just have to find the framework of what you like and what works within that. And then you can play with it, right? Like there's so much playroom once you find that collection in there. That's what I mentioned earlier. The N of one is not within the, the numbers, right? Because yes. that has a range and that range is, I mean, yes. let's, let's, let's be honest. That's not, it's really not that big at the end of the day. It's no, not it's good. Not. It doesn't go from one to a hundred, you know, it's no. certainly not, it's certainly not a hundred fold. It might be twofold at the very most. Right. But the range of, of foodstuffs, that's where you can get into the ends of ones. Like I like Cheetos instead of Doritos. Like, great. Okay, go ahead. Yes. Have Cheetos all freaking day. I like a traditional goo maltodextrin gel. Great. Go ahead and do that. You know what? I want something that is not a gel. Go ahead. Go. That's where we're talking about 
having flexibility for the N of one, not necessarily in the number side of it. And the only thing I will say to that is within the Dorito versus Cheeto world or whatever chips, know your numbers. Like, you know, I will give Nick Patatella a huge nod right now because he counts the amount of Swedish fish (laughs) he needs in his baggie. Right. But that's essential is I don't care what the product is, but know that you can't, sometimes they're not a one-on-one match. And so just be very aware of like what's in your baggie. Don't just grab like four chips and say, oh, this is the equivalent of this, that those numbers do actually matter. Yeah. People run into that uh, problem all the time at aid stations, right? Because the portioning (laughs) is not under, under their control anymore. And they're dealing with the quesadilla, right? It's classic aid station food that could be 100 calories or it could be 500 calories, depending upon yep. how big it is, how much stuff is in it and all that kind of other stuff. And if you're not used to sizing that up, pun intended, if you're not using the size that sizing that up time and time again, you can get in in trouble in terms of having caloric overload. Well, and I always caution people if you're preparing for your a race that aid station food, the variability, whether it be aid station food, the way drinks are mixed. Yeah. Oof. Um, what drinks are, is it caffeinated, uncaffeinated? I said, do you want to leave your aid? Do you want to leave your a race to all those variables or pack a drop bag or, you know, have what, you know, I, I don't know how many people rely on the drinks on an aid station for their like most important race. And then they say, oh, it was caffeinated or it was yeah. too concentrated yeah. and I couldn't drink it. And I'm like, but this was your aid race. Why didn't you have a single serve of whatever? Or, you know, why didn't you pack? Because that's all that it came down to was you making your needs the priority. Yes, grab the quesadilla, but that's just added bonus, right? Or grab two pretzels, but two pretzels are not your fuel source. <laughs> well, and even the aid station volunteers are all well-intended, but you're right. A lot of the totally. time it goes astray. I, I can I can tell the story because it's old enough now that all the principal players will not mind me <laughs> you know, throwing them under the bus a little bit. But in 2011, I think it was 2011 when I did the Western States 100. I can't even remember. I've only done it one year. It was, it was, it was, te- it was over 10 years ago. So that, that, that dates it. I went out to the training camp and they had Goo as their nutrition sponsor. And so I was planning on using goo products, goo gels. They had just come out with their chomps at the time, which was like a novel, like that at the time was a novel product, right? Having a chewable. And I was going to use their electrolyte drink, which was whatever came after goo2o. I can't remember. Remember it was called goo2o a long time ago. It was pre-roctane. Yeah, it was in between. It was kind of roctane, but not roctane. Yeah, I was was planning on using that. And so I go out to the, I go out to the training camp because I was, you know, I wanted to mimic the race day stuff. They're going to have everything out there on race day. And I'm going through the aid stations and I'm taking the goo, the goo electrolyte drink out of the Gatorade, out of the big Gatorade uh, jugs. And I'm like, this tastes really light. I'm like, what is going on with this? And so I get to the end of the day and I ask the head aid station volunteer at uh, Forest Hill or something like that. I'm like, hey, why is the why is the goo goo brew? That's what it was called. Why is oh, the that's right. why is the goo brew like why does it taste so light? Is this a different flavor or whatever? She's like, oh, we cut it in half. I'm like, well, why did you cut it in half? And she says, oh, it's in our aid station manual. So the aid station manual that the volunteers get, and I saw it. I she brought it out in front of me, and I read it with my own two eyes. Said to intentionally 
dilute the goo brew to one half. So this is where the story gets funny. So we just happen to have a relationship with Brian Vaughn, who's, who was former CEO of, of goo at the time he was the CEO. And so I called him up the next, the very next day. And I said, Hey, Brian, you guys are the sponsor of this race, Western States 100. Did you know they're intentionally diluting your group? Which at the time it was a new product for them. So they kind of wanted right. it to like shine through, you know, they wanted to put a good light on it. And he's like, Oh my, he was kind of mortified, right? Because they were <laughs> adulterating their product that they had spent right. how many hours of research and development on once again, no fault to goo, no fault right. to the great aid station volunteers. It just happened for whatever reason, it might have been left over from 10 years prior to that. It just happened to be in this manual that said intentionally dilute the concentration by half of whatever it says on the bag. So to your point, Meredith, that's just a long winded story to say you have to be careful when you're relying mm-hmm. on the aid stations. You still have to be you have to be mindful of what you're taking in and what people are giving yeah. you. And you have to own that, right? Yeah. Like if you had done yeah. Western States and you said, I'm going with that, you that's you making the decision yeah. of whatever they're serving up, I'm going for it. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, it's like, if the race is important enough to you, maybe don't chance that. <laughs> oh, I, even, even now when I, when I, or when I have athletes use the same product that the race is sponsored by, I still have them bring their own stuff. Like 100%. Yeah. Cause you don't know what flavors you're going to get. You don't know how it's mixed. You don't know yep. who's touched it. All that kind of stuff is, you know, once again, the aid station volunteers are all trying to do a great job and they all do do a fantastic job and they're all very well-meaning. But when it comes down to sometimes these really precise things on performance, you got to take ownership of it, as you mentioned. And to the point that like, if you're thinking, oh, X number of gels or chomps or whatever, what if that aid station didn't get any delivered to their table, right? Like there's your race right there because you couldn't put four gels in your pack, you know? Yeah, exactly. What's the weight penalty that you're really all that worried about? Right. (laughs) So yeah, I actually have that conversation a lot that's great. And it, it's a perfect backup plan to ha- that, you know, you can count, like if you drop everything out of your pack, it's there, but to have that be your first priority of like, Oh, I'm just going to grab everything at the table. It's like, you've worked so hard. Yeah, exactly. This is so yeah. simple. Yeah, exactly. It is a simple thing. Okay. <sighs> since, <laughs> since you're in nutrition and I've got your ear, and you and I know each other, we can be kind of, we, we can be colloquial and chummy about this next section that I wanted to bring up with you. And that is some of the misconceptions that you see in the nutrition space. And, and the reason we all like cheekiness aside, the reason I like to bring this up with people who are in the nutrition space that I know is because I know for a fact that the professionals in this space have been pulling their hair out for the last four or five years trying to trying to combat that. And I'll, I'll tell another kind of anecdotal tale to, to lead this in. Since the Olympics are going on uh, right now as we're, as we're recording this, I had this conversation with one of their, one of their head dietitians uh, maybe three or four months ago or something like that. Uh, here in, in Colorado Springs in the way that the, their nutrition services work is they kind of pool the athletes so the, or, or the different sports. And so they'll have three or four sports come in all at the same time. And they'll have one registered dietitian work with them. And they'll have another three sports come in all at one time. And they'll have another one kind of work with them so they can maintain some sort of continuity. 
And um, this 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 gal that I've known for a very very long time, who's extremely well qualified, professionals, very very good at what she does. She just she, she was having a bad day. Let's put it that way. And I asked her, I was like, "Hey, what's going on?" They just gotten a new group of athletes in, and she goes, "I spend eighty percent of my time whenever a new gr- group of athletes come in debunking stuff on the Joe Rogan podcast." And I did not spend my professional education and my professional career doing that. I want to take things forward, not bring them to par. And so and, and I use that as a story that it's just becoming prevalent in the in the space where there there has to be a lot of re-education that is being done in the nutrition space because of, of, of a lot of the misinformation and, and misconceptions. So I left it up to you. What are the biggest ones that you see? And you have your thumb on the pulse of this or your finger on the pulse of this very acutely because you're getting athletes in just like my friend at the training center. And what do you have to go through? What are the things that you initially have to unwind with those athletes? Well, I'll stick to where we were talking about kind of race preparation, race nutrition. And it's that one golden product is the only product you should use. Right. Um, That's kind of number one. That's in people's marketing. (laughs) I've seen that in nutrition companies marketing. Yes. And I wish companies would act. The best marketing plan that a company could have would be to say, you can use our product in conjunction with anything. You know, if used properly, maybe you use less, whatever you do. If you use this in a different way, you could also use this with many products. And all these products could work together aside from Hammer Perpetuum and anything with sugar. (laughs) Asterisk. (laughs) The only product that does not play nice with other products, right? What's the matter with Hammer Perpetuum? Why does it not play nice with other products? They have, if you flip over Hammer Perpetuum, which I learned in 2004 at Arkansas Traveler, I was crewing. It was the product, the new product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is not to be used in conjunction with simple sugars. They say um, that on the label? It says that on the label. Oh my um, God. Well, but if you don't read the label, you don't know that. Um, our friend, I was pacing a friend and he had been consuming Perpetuum and Gatorade together. Imagine how that went for his stomach. <laughs> uh, okay, well, so... But aside yeah. from anything that has a specific you know, doesn't play nice with other products. I think that that's a misconception is that people are saying our sole product is the only product you should use. It's the only product you need. This is it. And it makes people so inflexible if they're using X product because they don't realize I could dilute this down a little bit and mix other things. I don't have to take this at X strength, you know? And so we become a slave to the marketing of these products in taking them as some marketer wrote them, not a scientist wrote them to be taken. Um, And so my concern is more that the instruction of how to take product 
in this take only our product scenario is that it really limits people and traps them into this bubble of a single product that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, I'm 100% on board on that. And it's actually been a little bit bizarre to see, to, to see that intentionally pushed out over the last few years. And I, I just look at it and I go, well, who came up with this? Like, it's, is it because that's the only product you have? I mean, why don't we just limit it even further and just say, well, it's got to be orange. Orange flavor <laughs> is the only flavor that you're allowed to take or it's not going to play nice with others. It's the only yeah. flavor that you can take during your race is the only flavor that you need. Like you would never say something like that. Like, so it, it's, I'm totally on board with you that that is a, certainly a bizarre one. And it's hard because, you know, people want to take what this elite runner's taking right. And oftentimes these elite runners are taking multiple different products, you know, and they're really, they're open to utilizing different products mixed in with their one product. And so that is really, that is something that I work through and I, to Hammer, I don't think anybody from Hammer will listen, but Perpetuum is their only product that does not play nice with others. So here, all their other, all their other products do. Um, so I just want to note that um because i don't you know i never want i have no affiliation with products but i never want to be um i like products i like people to have that open feel to be able to find what they like and the marketing of companies has limited that i i, I tend to full admission you know this about me meredith i'm just going to admit it to the audience <laughs> i tend to throw the baby out with with the bathwater on that Meaning if the marketing is shit, I'll also discard the product, even though it might be a viable product. It's just because I'm getting so fed up with a lot of the nonsense marketing, particularly in the, in the, in the nutrition realm, that it's an easy way for me to filter down recommendations, right? If, you're, if your marketing is total nonsense, then all right, you get put on the shit list. Once you come up with good marketing, then you can come back into the real world. So, but that I feel like, well, maybe because of my position is that, I want to make these products work like yeah. until somebody says this product does not work for me. And a lot of times it comes down to, I get feedback. Like I've tried these, this doesn't work great. Let's move on. Um, but there are ways to utilize the product, you know, and that's where you have to totally not read their instructions or their marketing is okay. Yes. You have a single sleeve of something, whether it be a chew or whether it be a powder, you can use half of it. It's totally okay to use half of it and roll it up. And probably for your personal application, half of it is better. Um, so, you know, I'm not helping sell anything because I'm cutting products in half, but you know. <laughs> but why does that happen? Maybe you're not the best person to answer this. Maybe I need to bring on somebody from goo or whatever. Like, I don't understand why it happens that products are designed with dosing that doesn't make sense. And you and I have seen it before. And what I mean by that is a gel that's like 40 grams of carbohydrates. That's been, that's been, that is intended to be taken in one shot. That doesn't make any sense based on anything that we know about nutrition and science. That And that is the issue, right? So I'm, and then I'm over here suggesting to people to take a third or a half of a gel at a time and roll it over <laughs> in their pack. That is literally my suggestion. Like, it's like, this is how I'm making it work. If this is your favorite gel, yeah, I'll find a way. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, but 
I wish that they would have like a mini version of their gel or little mini packets, you know, some bar companies have made like little bites and minis. Yeah. And I'm like, this is genius because this is how you should be consuming your bar during an event. <laughs> you know, you should never eat an entire cliff bar, yeah. little cliff bar bites. That's a great approach. <laughs> well, once again, the genius of the chew where you're getting 15 or 20 calories totally. you know, in one little bite. I, I think that from a dosing perspective, I don't, I don't know how much of that has been intentional with the, those companies over the years, but that is the right way to do yes, it in smaller, absolutely. nibble, nibble, sip, sip, as we always say. Okay, let's 100%. move on. Let's, let's move okay. on before we piss off anybody else in somebody's <laughs> marketing department. Um, I mean, I've, I've said no company. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next one, Meredith, I'm going to leave it up to you. What is the next biggest mis misconception that you're typically dealing with with new athletes? Um, the, just the restrictive eating, um, the, I will say that the people who have gone through the weeds with eating disorders have really, people who are out there have done a beautiful job of saying, eat, yeah. you need to eat. The approach to being healthy is to eat. And I'm so grateful that there is just, I'm, I'm sad that there's a population that exists, but I'm so grateful that people are vocal about we need to eat and we need to eat to fuel for training and recovery. Um, because the misconception is if I want to be at some magical race weight that I need to diet while I'm training and you know, I take the word race weight. That means nothing to me. The word race weight to me means the weight at which you feel your best. You can go out and train every day. You recover well, you can sleep well, you have good energy, your stomach's not growling. That is race weight to me. And so I don't know what the scale says to equal that, but there is an amazing feeling when you have felt your best. And you are always fueled when you feel that way. There yeah. is no time that you are restricted and you can say across the board, I'm training well, I have great energy, I'm recovering well, I can go out and do this every day. That never happens when you're restricted. That also means eating a balanced plan. And there, it, like, I don't care how you turn it, but you need all the things mm. to feel that way. So I have a couple follow-ups to that. The the first one of which is there there has been a lot of movement as of late to you to utilize nutrition strategies with the very express outcome of enhancing fat oxidation. And one of the hallmarks of any of those strategies of which there there are many, one of the hallmarks of any of those strategies is you're try, is you're restricting caloric intake at some point. You're either restricting it during the day or you're restricting it during the workout or you're sticking it after workout or maybe in between workouts. And I'm not going to go through all of those different strategies. I'll link an article that I wrote about all of them in the in the show notes if somebody wants to if somebody wants to actually go and check those out. What I want to know though as a practitioner, right? You you help people manage this. And more so than I do, more so than any of our coaches do, this is kind of what you do. This is your bag for a living. Are you ever deploying any of those types of strategies with that express outcome? No, I, I would say the only 
not fat oxidation. The only time is if I have somebody that has a super squirrely stomach and they feel their best. Again, I drive toward feeling your best. They wake up at five in the morning and they're starting running at five 30 in the morning. And they're like, if I eat, I'm going to feel like crap. And I'm going to be searching for bathrooms my entire run. That is the, you know, those are, that's one time yeah. I would say that, but then the minute they finish running, I'm like, it's all about recovery. It's all about eating the minute you finish, you know, so there's, and if the run's long enough, then you need to be fueling. And I don't care if you're looking for a bathroom, you know, so there's a tactic to that. Like, yes, you can go out the door with an empty stomach, but then depending on what you're doing, there's a whole different scenario that may be taking place during your scenario, never towards this fat oxidation, never towards this purposely limiting or skipping meals because the reality is i don't care what magical thing we're happening we're going to eat and chances are it also creates a scenario where we open the door for this potential for binge eating because if you get hungry enough and you start going towards your your kitchen starving even the most balanced and best intended person is going to eat differently to solve that feeling of starvation. So not even fat oxidation aside, not even like healthy eating aside, it's how do we just keep our bodies and brains happy, right? And that's getting in the meals we need, getting in the recovery we need, taking care of our workouts. Like all those things fall beautifully into place when we're eating in a way to support all of that. I've always viewed it as one up 10. And by the way, it's super boring and I'm sorry. And I always, you know, I love to say like, I have no plan that's sexy. It is all super boring. (laughs) (laughs) All the, all the, all the spot on practitioners that I talk to on this podcast and I work with reiterate that this stuff is not boring. It's not sexy. Nobody's gonna, you know, put it on the front on the cover of anything, No, but it's what it kind of, what is kind of what works. Um, to, to the point that to this back to this fat oxidation point, I've always treated it as one up, 10 down. Like I can get the one up on the fat oxidation side. Like I can, I can read the literature and I can look at sure. that and go, okay, yeah, sure. There's, there, there, there's a little something there. You could say that with almost any intervention. The 10 down is everything that you just mentioned to, and I can't put it any, I can't really put it any better. So that's always been my answer to, well, you know, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? I, what I thought you were going to actually going to say is, is not so much in the the morning scenario where they can't eat anymore of where they just be, they're just so intolerant to, to calorie intake that you have to start to deploy some of those tricks to increase fat oxidation. And I've been trying to find practitioners who, 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 who kind of run into that scenario, but it's, it's actually really, really hard. It's such a small fraction of people that can't train themselves to consume an adequate amount of calorie that they have to deploy the tricks. Yeah, no, mine is more of whether it be a paranoia. Also, when we talk about people who are typically training early in the morning, they don't have the luxury of if this run doesn't go well, if I spend all this run in a bathroom, I can just do it in a couple of hours or I can do it later in the day. Like this is their moment, right? Most people have jobs, families, think about their reality. And so my goal is how can we make this opportunity the most successful pop, you know, possible. 
And for some people that's, Hey, just go out the door, yeah. you know, and always carry a gel with you or carry a waffle with you or carry some shoes with you. If you start getting hungry during your run or if your energy's not great, but sometimes people just need to go out the door, yeah. you know, and that's what it's about for them. I don't run into people scared or so in, and maybe it's the population people I see, but the only people who are unwilling to fuel in the morning has more to do with kind of the extraneous things that, you know, real life things that they run into during their runs. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned some of the disordered eating uh, pieces of it. I, I don't want to, I don't want to berate that to, to, to any, to any further point between you and I, I'll, I'll direct people to two podcasts that I did with the fabulous Dr. Kate Bennett, who's a longtime colleague of mine in a book that she wrote, uh, treating athletes with eating disorders. The links to that will be, will be in the show notes. If you are a coach out there, or if you are an athlete out there that are looking for resources, I would encourage you to check those two out. And it's something that I know that in the nutrition world and also in the psychology world, and I did not know this before I got on the horn with uh, Kate several months ago, they don't even teach this, how to work with athletes with eating disorders. It's like not part of the, it's not part of any recognized curricula right now, which is absolutely fascinating because we see it so prevalent in, in not just endurance, endurance sports, but in all sports. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, well, I went to school where in 98, it was so science-based that was not, you know, we, we had one class on, you know, nutrition and athletes yeah. and it was an elective. So <laughs> the, I think half of my friends took it so that, that we were just in a different world then. But, um, even now going back for an advanced nutrition and human performance, we had nutrition and athlete courses but there was nothing about eating disorders. Yeah, it's crazy how it, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't use that phrasing. It, it, I think it's been really enlightening and um, uh, I'm very thankful that just as you are, that more and more athletes have been advocates for this. So I encourage more, even more athletes to come to the forefront about this stuff because the more it is out there in the open, the more we can talk about it and then ultimately help people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the stigma about it is disappearing. Um, you know, I have worked with high school elite swimmers and um, high school elite runners, and there's a huge stigma. You know, when when I've seen and talked to those athletes, some of what the parents and coaches don't understand. So just like an athlete that eats healthy, they get pegged that they have an eating disorder. Yeah. And then some of the athletes that are, you know, binging and ha really having a problem, the parents are looking at them like you're overweight. Yeah. And so it's like, it's just a very coach parent misguided. And this is for younger athletes, you know, so that's the formation though, of how we become adult athletes. Um, you know, and they just, it perpetuate some of these issues. Yeah. It's something that I've come to realize is we don't realize that a lot of times the influence that we actually have. And I tell the athletes, I work with a lot, this, that you pe people, whether you realize it or not, because you're successful, because you're good, people are going to look up to you and absolutely. you've got to take that for better or for worse, but it is absolutely a responsibility you can't just post all this nonsense about what you're doing without the right context and realize that they're downstream, you know, effects and all those other things. 
that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Nobody wants to, <laughs> nobody wants to hear us talk about these types of social issues. I'm going to give you the floor for one last one though that is a little bit of a tangentially uh, related uh, uh, aspect, and this is this concept of fad diets, which I know that you have interaction with through the through, through the people that you are working with. I have known you, and you just mentioned it to take kind of like a no BS approach with things. Like if you don't know what the outcome is ultimately going to be. You don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. We'll let other people experiment and we will let the research kind of tease itself out. And if that means you're at the end of that bell curve, so be it. Why have you intentionally kind of like taken that directive though? Because there are a lot of practitioners out there in the space that will say the opposite, that I want to be on the leading edge of these things and be in the, I'm going to use the word fad group, but they wouldn't use that. I want to be in the fad group because we're pioneering things, right? That's the, that's the, that's the word that I literally hear out of some of these people's mouths when they're undertaking whatever it is, the carnivore diet or whatever, we're pioneering the next wave of nutrition science or whatever. Specifically with you though, why have you tried, why have you taken this I want to, I want to figure out what the long-term consequences are first before I will start to recommend something. Um, I have said this forever. My clients are not guinea pigs or not my guinea pigs. And they didn't sign up for a research study when they signed on with me. Um, And so because of that, I feel a huge responsibility that any recommendation I make is based on something with a long-term result that I'm not going to leave them, you know, question mark 10 years from now with vitamin deficiencies, question mark, you know, is their body going to, you know, break down? Are they going to be more likely for stress reactions, you know, osteoporosis, like, I just refuse to do it. Just, I can't, you know, I can't feel good about myself if I'm doing something like that. I also make, I've made the choice that, you know, there was, um, Ross Tucker wrote an article and at the end of our, and this was many years ago, and this was about the fat, you know, fat, you know, fat utilization going on these fad diets. And he felt very strongly. He said, nutrition is, you know, eating healthy is not sexy. You know, he said, eating balanced, nobody wants to hear that, but that's what I'm going to tout. You know, this is what I'm going to talk about. I have seen long-term success with athletes and athletes that come back to me, you know, I have one athlete that I haven't talked to since 2010 and he's back to me because he knows that when he comes back to me, what we're going to do is going to last 10 years, right? He needs to tweak his nutrition for a new race 10 years later. Right. So like I didn't do something so pioneering and cutting edge <laughs> that I need to talk to him every six months to, you know, revamp this system. My goal is to actually have people find their way and not need me, Yeah, you know, and to just be able to share every couple of years, wow, this race went really well. This is still working. I'm so happy. That for me is successful business. Like I'm not looking for people who need me to hold their hand. Like I, I tell a client, I don't want to live in your kitchen. <laughs> Right. You can laugh to yourself and say, oh, it's this Meredith approved. 
but I actually don't want you to have to talk to me so often that I'm living in your kitchen with you, right? Like if you're eating balanced and you're eating right and you are eating foods you like, then I don't have to stand over your shoulder. And so like, that's been my approach. Um, it's, it just is like, this is where, this is where I land. This is who I am. So, you know, this is what I would want. And so I give people what I would want. One of my colleagues uh, put that sentiment this way. It's your professional obligation to become largely obsolete over long periods of time. 100%. If you're doing your job, the athlete can take control. They know everything. Yeah, they're going to come back to you for 1% or 10% or whatever when previously they were utilizing 90%. But if you're doing your job right, it's your professional obligation to ultimately become largely obsolete. There's all the caveats, so you can probably guess who gave me that. <laughs> yes, but that's, that is it, right? Like, there it is. Yeah. Um, I want people to be so successful they don't need me. Um, and I want them to utilize things that are so long-term or create a plan that's so long-term that they don't need me to hold their hand to, to do it every day and to eat. They want, they look forward to what they're eating. They like what they're doing. Their nutrition plan is working. That's success. Like if I see you out, I'll be happy to see you, but you don't, you know, yeah. And, and that's just been my approach. I know people sign people up and they want people to like, oh, we're going to do this every week and we're going to do this every however long. And when honestly, when I meet with somebody, I'm like, OK, well, we're going to start and then here's the plan for us to get out or, you know, here's what that progression looks like. Or quite frankly, you probably just need this plan and you're good to yeah, go. Like, yeah. you know, and I'm fine with that. That's a good, flexible um, approach. I appreciate that. Right. I just refuse to sign somebody up. And then, cause I always joke, I said, what are we going to do? Talk and like, talk about the weather. Like you're paying me to talk about the weather. <laughs> uh, what a brilliant place to end it, Mara. Like I said, uh, on the onset, I always appreciate the way that you not only approach the advice and the counsel that you're giving athletes, because we work with a lot of mutual athletes. And anytime I send anybody over to you, I know it's going to be spot on. I don't have to double check it. I can trust it for everything that it's worth. But Thank more you. importantly, from a practitioner perspective, I appreciate your framework and how you approach a, approach this as a profession. So for those for those people that are out there that don't want to talk about the weather with you and that want to talk about nutrition, whether that's once or a hundred times, Meredith, <laughs> where would you direct them to go? Um, they can find me at eatingandlivinghealthy.com. Um, that the benefit of getting into the business very early is you get a great name. <laughs> I was about to say, that <laughs> is good. I never realized how good that was. <laughs> yeah. So, and that, you know, that kind of fits, fits exactly everything. So, yeah. That's awesome. We'll go check Mare out. Also, if you follow her on Instagram, you might get some good baking tips. I will throw that in there for anybody out there who's interested. Thank yes, you for what you do. Lots of baking on Instagram. Lots of baking. baking and dogs. There you go. Mara, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. 
Much thanks to Meredith for coming on the podcast today. As I mentioned during the intro, she is very humble, but make no mistake, she is one of the best at what she does, and she has achieved some of the highest results for somebody in her field. And I've always appreciated her approach of using the science to really create the guardrails around the nutrition program and then let each individual's preferences take over from there. I hope that you guys came away with that at least that one little nugget of wisdom. Always appreciate the heck out of each and every one of the listeners out there. If you do have a moment, go ahead and share this podcast with your friends or training partners. You can give it a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That helps the podcast out tremendously in reaching a wider audience. And if you have any questions coming up for a future podcast that you would like me to address, my direct messages are always open via Twitter or Instagram. I always appreciate getting those in and I try to bring those to the forefront as much as possible when we bring these expert guests on. That is it for today. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.